Good morning. Go ahead and grab a seat. Make yourself comfortable. Thank you very much. And if you've got a Bible or a device, we're going to be in Acts 15 today. Tricky passage today, I think. Uh, but I think we're going to do a good job with it. And I think it's going to show us the shape of Christ in a way that's going to be helpful for us as we move forward as a church. Acts 15. While you're turning there, some of you, if you're normal, I think you've probably wondered while driving down the road why there are so many different denominations. Have you ever thought about that? They don't, they don't even all look the same when you drive by. Some churches have steeples. Some obviously don't. Some meet in schools, right? You've got some, some churches where people show up and the pastor's going to probably be in a suit. I'm obviously not in a suit. The music will be different. Everything just feels a little different, right? And maybe you've probably been confused in the past over the difference between a PCA church and a PCUSA church and an EPC and an EV free SBC UMC church. The difference between an Anglican Catholic Episcopalian church. Is that confusing for you to know exactly why they're different and where they came from and why it even matters? Listen, if it's confusing for you, imagine how it feels to your neighbor, the city. That was one of the biggest turnoffs for Christianity when I was in college, was just looking at the landscape of different kinds of churches, wondering, what does this even mean? I don't even understand. Last week, over 70 UMC, Methodist churches, split from their northern Georgia denomination over the subject of homosexuality in the pulpit. And it's expected that many hundred will follow in the weeks to come. It's a split. The splits aren't new. Splits aren't even newsworthy when you think about it. It happens all the time now. The tree of Christianity has grown a bunch of different branches over the centuries. And because at some point, something significant or provocative enough has pushed people that used to do life pretty tightly together to the point where somebody said, you guys worship over there and we will worship over here. And sometimes the distinctions that provoke this are minor, like whether or not there are musical instruments allowed in the service. Sometimes it's a little bit more major, like the views of homosexuality and even abortion. Sometimes it's something that's in between, like the mode of baptism, sprinkle or immerse, something like that. And see right there, some of you probably disagree with me, right? Because I said that was in between. And, that, and that's part of the problem. What I might think is a major distinction, you think is a minor. And vice versa. Even in a room like this, not all of our convictions line up. And I think we can all agree on that. And that's because sometimes when we look at different expressions of the church, the distinctions are more like personality of the church or the, the feel or the philosophy of ministry of the church. Sometimes it's because there's a passage that everybody looks at and we all interpret it a little bit differently. And something we've said in classes before and something we've even said from the pulpit is if there are two different views of how to interpret a passage, somebody is wrong in that, right? Or both people are wrong, but both people cannot be right. But because there might be a difference in how to interpret a key passage, another split, another split. So let's try to simplify it a little bit because this is going to be important in our passage today. Some points of difference that we have with other believers are what we could call non-essential. I've, I've referred to it over time as open-handed issues, something you can pick up and put down pretty easily. It doesn't make a huge bit of difference. We could all even be in unity. We can say that, in unity. We are unified in some way. So how we take 
communion might be one of those, not, not communion being important, that's an essential, but a non-essential is the fact that we take it every week here, right? Uh, uh, the non-essential is the fact that we have those little rip and sip cups. I've got great friends that lead churches across town that we are unified and they do it once a month, right? It just depends. You can be unified and not uniform. And then sometimes there are points of difference that are essential, capital E. We would call those closed-handed or tight-fisted issues, and unity cannot really be held, like denying hell or the Bible's veracity, its infallibility. I think the majority of believers here in Knoxville, I think we all probably, the majority, would affirm the same biblical truths, that God is true, that God is loving, that sin is real, that it infects everybody, that God came to save us, that Jesus is fully God and fully man, that the cross was effective, that the empty tomb was real and good for us, that the Bible is true, that the Holy Spirit is given to God's people. I think these are boxes all of us can check. And if, in fact, we can check some of those boxes, we could look at each other and say, we're in unity. We're uniform with each other. Right? But where do we draw the line? At what, what point do we fight? When is it okay to fight? Can we fight over the gospel? And is it ever okay to say farewell to another believer? Today's passage is going to be valuable because it's going to help us see when we're supposed to be extending charity to people with different convictions. And then it's going to show us how to contend vigorously for the essentials that are very important and even when to say farewell and when we should do this. We, it, basically, we need to know as growing disciples how to fight and how to hug to the glory of God and when to do those things. Because honestly, some of us in this room, me included, we could be too charitable when we should contend a little bit more. And some of us, we could probably be a little bit more charitable when we're so quick to fight. All of us are going to lean in one direction or the other. Now, if you've been going through the book of Acts with us, we've been moving fairly fast through this, I and mean, we were already halfway through the book. So as we do this, it's important to remember that we've already covered 10 years of the history of the church's mission. So it's been 10 years plus since Jesus has lived, died, and lived again. And in that time, we've watched a young church navigate some pretty deep complications, persecution, families being split apart, leaders being tortured, killed, churches being planted, there being pastors set in, arguments, debates, and most of all, explosive addition. I mean, every time we read a passage, we'll find something that sounds or rhymes with, and more people were added to the church, or the gospel grew. But there's explosive addition. That's hard enough to kind of keep healthy. What makes it more difficult is when the explosive addition is made up of people that are so wildly different in their worldviews and their convictions. Most of us in this room were born in the United States, and we grew up on the same TV content, and pretty much celebrated the same holidays for the most part. We all love tacos, right? We all hate inflation. We all didn't agree with our parents, but probably are turning into them a little bit as time goes on, right? We all have a whole lot in common with each other. But make no mistake, you were infinitely different than the person sitting next to you. 
infinitely. And you know this, right? You know, sometimes you don't even need them to say a word to you. You see them coming from a while while away. They're walking towards you. And just by looking at them, you think to yourself, you never say this out loud because you're really polite, right? But in your mind, you think, yeah, we'll never get along, you and me, probably. We're never going to be good friends. If we were in a party together, it'd be hard for us to move past three minutes of small talk because on the Venn diagram things, Uh, that you like, they don't overlap at all. There's nothing that you guys have in common. Maybe you can't see it that far away, and it's in the, I guess, in a deep conversation that you're having with them that you realize, wow, not only are we very different, we might be incompatible. Like, we might not be able to ever really spend that much time together because their convictions are so different than yours, and there is discomfort in it. One of you is very medical science, the other is very essential oil, all right? One of you is conservative, the other progressive. One of you is, you know, intrigued about the idea of racial reparations, the other vehemently against it. One of you is King James Version only, the other not so much. Very different. And you wonder if it's too different. One of my favorite rap artists, he says that we are a collection of souls. And what he's talking about when he says we're a collection of souls is we're really a collection of the imprint of many voices and many people that have shaped us. So you're here, and you are who you are by virtue of both your, your chemistry and your experiences, nature and nurture, right? That's, you, you brought things in here with you. You brought a worldview. You brought convictions in here with you. And you carried them to the same family table. And when Jesus rescues us, most of our worldview, most of our convictions are flipped upside down, most of them. But isn't it interesting how we kept some of them? Isn't it interesting that some of the things that you would have fought for pre-Jesus, you find even more beautiful or even more firm because of Jesus? I find that true in my life. When we carry our deep, deep convictions into this room, we carry it to the same family table where we do life tightly with each other. And just like we have with our blood families over the holidays where we don't agree on all the non-essentials, but love each other fiercely, we do so here. But when is it okay to say you're wrong and you need to change? You might be in sin. When is it okay to say farewell? It's so easy to fight at the wrong time and hug at the wrong time. It wasn't too long ago, friends, when we were splitting over a vaccine. We were splitting over whether or not to pray for the police or pay the police. We were splitting over masks and homeschooling, how to vote, magazine capacity, all these things not so super essential, not worth separating over. I've heard just in the last two months, people say that you cannot be a Christian and a Democrat at the same time, right? They believed it. You cannot be a Christian and own an AR-15 at the same time. I can't find that anywhere in the word. I can't see a, a, a line directly drawn between the two. So again, when do we hug to the glory of God and when do we fight to the glory of God? So this passage, I think, is going to be helpful in bringing some shape to the things that we all experience and we all already see anyway. All right? So we're in Acts 15. The church is growing at this point, And because it's growing, we're starting to bump into things. Let's go ahead and start moving through it. And we're going to pause for a moment to moment to kind of maybe look and explain what's going on. This is the word of the Lord for us, though. Verse 1. But some men came down from Judea... And we're teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. 
And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Okay, pause for a moment. The church is filling up with different convictions, different worldviews. That's what we're starting to see. And some men are making their convictions a gospel essential. They're saying, this is closed-handed for us. It's an essential. Therefore, it's binding on everybody around us, including you guys. And these guys are from the mothership in Judea, right? A lot of them former Pharisees. And that's important to know. I don't think that they were wolves. Now, I'm going to submit this and not teach it. I don't know their hearts. I don't suspect they're being wolves. All they knew since childhood were the laws laid down by Moses. This, being a Jew was more than just being in a denomination back then. It was the fabric of their reality. It was everything that made them up from childhood on. And although the gospel won them, it didn't just immediately erase all of their deep convictions. It didn't just erase who they were as a people. So one of these essentials, they tight-fistedly brought into this growing church and they said, you got to be circumcised. And what they mean when they say that, as we learn a little bit later, is that they're wanting the Gentiles, who are not Jews, to take on the whole of Jewish life. To be a Christian, you have to be a Jew. That's what they're saying. Not a suggestion. This is a condition. So what they're doing is polluting the gospel by saying Jesus is not enough. Now it's Jesus plus something. This is bigger than just circumcision. And yes, this is a moment for a fight. This is a moment for a fight. Because the Jews escaped the burden of the law, and yet they want the Gentiles to be attached and shackled to the same law. Paul will tell some of these guys a little bit later, he says, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? If you add anything, even something good, to the gospel, it pollutes the gospel and it makes it no longer any good of news. And if we lose the gospel's purity, we lose absolutely everything. Paul smells this out, Barnabas smells this out, so it says they have no small dissension. That is code for they had it out. It was probably a little bit loud, they fought, because the gospel is to be fought for. I wonder if the temperature going up in that room made people feel uncomfortable. Think about it. They got a little bit more emphatic, a little bit more frustrated. Teams started to kind of split the room in half. It was not a small debate is what we read. And I wonder if there were people in the room that got uncomfortable with that. Hey, guys, can we just like bring the volume down? I mean, we're all supposed to love each other. We're all supposed to be in unity. I mean, this would have been very difficult for the huggers in the room. Huggers don't like to fight. But contending is what we must do when the gospel is being polluted. Because why? Because it's essential. It's tight-fisted. It's essential. Friend, listen, I'm, I will never fight you over the Sabbath when you take it, if you take it. I'm not going to fight you over whether 
Jesus is coming back now or in a million years or what that will even look like. I'm not going to fight you over whether you eat pork or drink O'Doul's or the real thing or spend your money on Disney or celebrate Christmas or have a Christmas tree. I'm not going to fight you on any of that stuff. Non-essentials, but I won't lose any sleep on contending over the gospel. And you shouldn't either. You shouldn't either. Jude 1, verse 3, it says, Beloved, he says, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Contend, he says, contend, fight. Stand in the gap, wrestle, don't yield. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And men have been burned at the stake for this. Why? Because it's worth fighting for. It's absolutely worth fighting for. And I was telling them backstage a little bit, I know that this moment in the Bible and our story, this arc that we get to read about in Acts, it sounds a little bit like a moment we can't quite connect to today because we're fresh out of Jews requiring circumcision to be a Christian. I just haven't bumped into any. You probably haven't either. But we still pollute the gospel. We all do it. You probably do it on a daily basis just like I'm tempted to do it on a daily basis. What is it that you bring to the Lord and extend to him, hoping that you get more grace? What is it that you bring and you you think in your heart, is this enough? Is this enough for you to like me more, to love me more, to, to give me more security? Is this what it takes? If this isn't what it takes, what what does it take? A little bit more? Will you like me then? What about this? What if I add this? What if I take this away? What if I change? Will you love me more? You do this because you're working through the weight of grace. It's heavy. It seems too good to be true. Grace is God's unmerited favor poured upon you. Grace is God's favor to you, totally despite you. It comes to you when you are most unimpressive because Christ, when he was brilliant, was most impressive. Jesus alone has done all of the work. That is grace. And what that means for you is you work through your day and your average day, your average week of an average year, that in your most rebellious of moments, you are not loved less than in your most brilliant of moments. There is nothing you can do to get him to pry his fingers off of just a little bit more favor and grace for you. It is showered in totality on you because of who Christ is and the fact that you were buried in him. And this is worth fighting for. Now, we trust this on paper, but we still work through it. I think even on a good day, we probably can walk in in this and, 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 and think it natural, but we are all still working through this because we're all a little bit allergic to grace like that, hesitant to believe that this is really true. And we don't add circumcision today, right? Let's be honest, but we'll add all kinds of things, and I bet everyone in this room has a different constellation of things that they add and subtract that they think if they do it and they just drill it down and they put a perfect week together, then God really, really will draw closer, love you more, give you more favor. I mean, it could be baptism. If I just get baptized, if I just gave more money, showed up to more things, served, evangelism, any simple behavior. But I also find it to be true of the things that we don't do. What if I don't do this, Lord? What if I get less angry, less insecure, less anxious? What if I look at 
It's stuff I shouldn't be looking at. What if I look at it less? What if I go to IShouldn'tBeHere.com far less than, I, than I've been doing in the past? Will you love me then? Will we be tighter then? We can all so easily pollute the gospel with something that is nothing more than a petition for more love. I, again, I suspect these Jews are not wolves as much as people just working through grace. Just like I do. Just like you do. It's just too good to be true. So we trip on it a little bit. And it's obvious that they have it out to the level to where somebody said, one of these guys from Judea says, oh yeah, I I wasn't there submitting this. I feel like somebody said, well, our pastor is James. Don't know if you caught that. We're from Jerusalem, right? I don't know about you, Paul, but James is our pastor because somebody had to say, all right, well, then let's just go up and figure this out then. We'll all just get in the minivan and we'll drive up to Jerusalem and we'll have this out. And that's what they do. So let's look at verse 7 and see how that goes whenever they get there. Verse 7, and after there had been much debate, and this is when they're there, Peter stood up, okay? So Peter must have been just kind of roaming around Jerusalem at the time. Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago with Cornelius' family. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And the assembly fell silent, it says. And then they listened to Barnabas and Paul. So now Peter's done talking. And then team Paul starts to pipe in and says, and as they related the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And so we've got these guys, we've got Peter contending. You've got Paul and Barnabas contending. They give their positions and now James is about to weigh in. James is massively respected and beloved. Brother of Jesus. He's a Jew from the old guard. Certainly Many probably thought this guy's going to be team circumcision. Certainly this guy is, right? So look at verse 13. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that just means Paul, or forgive me, Peter. That's another word for Peter. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophet agree, just as it is written, After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Okay, he's quoting from the book of Amos. He's talking about repairing the fallen tent of David. That is actually a picture of Jesus who is the final king of, of the reign of David's family coming and rebuilding not just ruins to house a people, but rebuilding ruins to house all people. Not just Jews and Gentiles and not anyone else. A Gentile is anyone who is not a Jew. So all of creation. That's what he's saying. James is wise here. You notice he refers to Peter from his Jewish name, and then he starts to pull straight out of Amos. So he is appealing to their Jewishness. Of, of, of his listeners. And this is what happens in verse 19. Look at verse 19. Therefore, my judgment, this is a summary judgment that James is making. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn 
to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Okay, what he's saying is there's Jews everywhere, every city. There's, de- there's Jews and there's devout Jews in every city, as it has been. But fellas, we're not forcing the Gentiles to live like Jews. And then we're going to talk to the Gentiles about being thoughtful for the Jews. Okay? This is going to be love in two different directions. This is what it says in verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men from among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers who were of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden then these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality, if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well, farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Okay, let's stop right there for a moment. All right. This is what he's saying. Jews... No unnecessary trouble because of your, condi- your convictions. Don't, bring, don't lay any more burdens down. No more unnecessary trouble because of your convictions. And then Gentiles, no unnecessary trouble because of your freedoms. Don't burden people because of what is free for you. Stay away from food that came from idol worship. Okay? It's interesting. He could have said a lot of things. He said that. This would have meant that they would have had to avoid eating certain kinds of meat around the Jews. Right? Now, if you're not familiar with Bible history or just the kinds of things that happened back in this context, people that worshipped various false gods and demons would sacrifice animals. They'd sacrifice plants from the field. They'd sacrifice babies. They'd sacrifice all kinds of things. But when they would bring like a cow or a lamb or something like that, they would bleed it out, and then that meat would be processed and sold in the market. And it was good meat. And we find out in other parts of the Bible that they're totally free to eat this, right? There's nothing wrong with this. There's nothing wrong for a Gentile or a Jew to eat this. God had already said so. He said it clearly already in Acts, and he'll say it clearly through some of these letters. Blood and all. But in the name of unity, in the name of unity and loving the person next to them, that they were to hold that with an open hand so that those in Christ, the Jews in every city, would not be offended. That's what's happening right here. That's why he's saying it the way he's saying it. The same gospel that brings freedom to the Gentiles provokes them to sacrifice and lay those freedoms down. Right? And this is in the same shape of a king who laid down his deepest of freedoms to preserve unity with us. We're unified with God because he sacrificed his deep freedom. And then it forms us to be a people that can walk out into this city and do the same. 
lay down those things that we're actually free to do if it causes another person to stumble. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. It's out of love that he's laying down things that he has a rightful grasp on. So the Jews end up saying, I'm not going to burden you with my non-essential convictions. The Gentiles turn around and say, I'm not going to burden you with my non-essential freedoms. That's what's happening. And this actually displays a church that is beautiful, a church that shows the city that it's a safe place for varying degrees of convictions and freedoms, where you and I can be unified and not uniform. We could be in unity and not look exactly the same. That means we can worship together, hold the same core essentials, and vote differently, spend our money differently, raise our kids differently. Why? Because when Jesus repairs the tent of David, it's a pretty big tent. It's a pretty big tent. It makes a covering for all the people of the world, billions of people with radically different worldviews and convictions, one Jesus, one church. Unified. Now, sometimes the non-essentials, non-essentials, sometimes the non-essential open-handed issues are so wildly different between believers that it is actually more fruitful and enriching to, to worship in a different setting with the different people. We, we get that, right? This is where a lot of denominations come from. Not all of them. This is where a lot of them come from, though. We have congregations this morning in this city that are speaking Swahili right now, just as sure as I'm speaking English to you. Wouldn't even know what that sounds like, but they're doing it. There are Korean churches. They're speaking Korean right now. It wouldn't be very fruitful for you to be sitting in there as, as much as it would be for them to be sitting in here. That's a cultural difference, of course. That's a cultural difference. But what about liturgy? We have a call to worship, right? That's too liturgical for some of you. Some of you are like, there's too much format to how we worship. It's not liturgical enough for others. People have chosen different churches and different denominations just because of the liturgy. Or baptism, how we baptize, when we baptize. Or even kids' community. There are denominations where there is no kids' community, right? Everyone's in here. All the moms are bobbing a kid on their knee. Lots of noise in this room. But that's a no-no back there. And that, that is comfortable for some people and uncomfortable for others. But we don't make our non-essential conviction a gospel essential for everyone around us just because it's important to us, right? One of the things that's been helpful for me over the years, whenever I'm kind of grappling with somebody that has a conviction, and you can tell it's a deep one, right? You can hear it in their voice. You can see it in their face. You're like, wow, okay, this is, this is a big deal for this person, right? They're not going to get past this. One of the things that's been helpful is for me to just say, hey, listen, if the Bible says it, it's true and it's binding for everybody. If the Bible does not say it, it might still be true, but it can't be binding on everybody. And that usually helps kind of take a conviction and place it where it belongs. Sometimes, right? But then other times people say, but Luke, we think the Bible says this clearly. We think that the Bible says this clearly and it disagrees with what you say the Bible clearly says. Well, first church of whatever denomination down the road believes exactly what you do. It might be more fruitful if you are there. That's where a lot of our denominations come from. So when you drive down the road and you see them, that's why they're there. There's some point of disagreement and distinction over how we read this. But where essentials are different, close-handed issues, where we're different in that, and we might not be able to move forward anymore we don't have any unity, 
Well, some things are worth separating over. Some things are worth saying farewell over. I keep using that word farewell because back in 2011, there was a book written by a pastor up in Michigan. His name is Rob Bell. He wrote a book called Love Wins. And it really made ripples in the Christian world. And if you never heard of it, that's fine. You're not expected to know that. It's not like you, you know, living under a rock or anything like that. But, but what it was, was it was a book on universalism. Basically saying that God is so loving, he would never send anyone to hell. There would be no such thing as judgment. And that's what universalism is. But it renders the cross as pretty much senseless. There's no, there's no point in the cross or an empty tomb if that is true. Now, he had been kind of drifting theologically in a wayward direction for a while, but there was a tweet that very same year the book came out from John Piper, who has a very large following, and all it had was three words, farewell, Rob Bell. And he caught a little bit of gruff for that. People said he was not loving. He's just not loving at all. I think he just knew when to fight. He knew when to fight. You see, a unified and diverse church shows the world that we can be free and safe with different convictions, but it also shows the world what is non-negotiable. It also shows the world what is closed-handed. We retreat to the gospel as our core of essentials. And where the gospel is polluted, we have discussions. No small debates, as it says in this passage. And we've done that even from this stage before. That's why you've heard it. When we've talked about the prosperity message, that's one of those moments where we would pick a fight, right? Jesus plus behavior, some sort of behavior, will give you health, it will give you friends, long life, it will give you prosperity, right? But it's really not a whole lot different than a legalistic message or a legalistic gospel which says Jesus plus behavior gives you security and approval, right? So one of those, they're basically the same thing. Prosperity gives you peace in this world. The legalistic message gives you peace in the next world. But it's all Jesus plus something. It's all gospel pollution. It's all worth fighting for. The pure gospel says that it is by grace and through faith in Jesus alone that villains of all kinds can be made family. But how hard do we take a line on this? Like how hard do we lean in? How hard do we fight for something like this? Well, Paul shows us in Galatians 1. And he says that this as he starts off the letter. He doesn't even really get but like two breaths deep into this letter. And he says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel, contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That's pretty stiff. That's pretty stiff. Listen, dear fighters in the room, if you're a fighter, fight for what's essential and then fight for unity. Fight for what is essential and then fight for unity. Not all of your convictions are gospel shelf items. I get it. It's important to you and you can't see how everyone else does not agree with you. I get that. It's got to be painful. But if it's not an essential, preserve the unity because that is your brother and that is your sister who Jesus died for. Don't be a Pharisee. Don't cause trouble. Don't cause trouble. If you're a hugger, dear huggers in the room, it's okay to contend vigorously. It's okay to fight over the gospel. It's okay to say farewell. It's all right. In fact, sometimes I think a hug is probably inappropriate. It would have been inappropriate for a John Piper to have 
texted or tweeted out saying, hey, great word. We might disagree a little bit. That's your perspective on hell. This is my perspective on hell. But hey, we could, we could be unified together. That would have been inappropriate. It's okay. I get it. It seems drastic. It doesn't feel Christ-like. You're wrong, though. Jesus was flipping tables over for things that were very core and very essential. It's okay to contend. Also, if you're a hugger in the room, it's okay to lay your freedoms down. In fact, it's beautiful to lay your freedoms down where it it helps those around you. If you're just flaunting your freedom because it's a freedom and you want to flaunt it, that just shows immaturity. This actually deserves its own sermon or two or ten. If your conscience is different from them, it's different. But you submit your freedoms to serve the person next to you. That's super important for us. Which way do you lean, by the way? Hug, fight. Pacifist, just angry. Where are you at? We all kind of lean in the direction, don't we? It's interesting. There's room to repent on both ends. And it's important that we do repent. Because the enemy loves to sow seeds that will cause division and discord in here where we are splitting over non-essential issues. And the enemy will sow seeds where you and I fight each other because someone's exercising a freedom and it's hurting the people around them. And they're just standing on the fact that they have this freedom now. Listen, we've got to be very careful here. We have to be very careful here. The church in America did not make it through the pandemic and racial discord very well. It just didn't. The church just didn't do very well. M- many people are divided, right? And listen, if you're in here and you are not a Christian or if you're watching online and you're not a Christian and you're kind of just in a journey of some kind, you're trying to figure out who God is, who Jesus is, and what sense all of this makes, you might not even own a Bible. Let me just tell you, it is a big tent that Jesus has prepared to make room for everyone. It's a big tent. And you'll be happy to know that he will take you and all of your convictions and all of your worldviews, but he will edit some of them. Some of your convictions will finally make sense. Some of the things you love apart from Jesus don't really make sense. You don't really understand why you're passionate about them. But through the, the film and the filter of the gospel, you're like, I know why that's so important to me now. The gospel Christ will come on and edit our worldviews and make some of them more beautiful. Some of your convictions well will go away. And this I promise you, you don't need to bring anything else to the table to be loved. Jesus was enough. He is enough. You need not bring anything. You need not bring a, a cleaned up version of you. You don't need to bring all the excuses of why you are the way you are. He understands and he will take you. That I promise you. And there's a lot for us to celebrate in this as a church because when we are in heaven one day, when we are celebrating forevermore, did you realize we still won't be uniform? We'll be in unity, but we're not all going to look the same. We're going to have different personalities and different preferences. I mean, the things that, that are beautiful about who we are, God will maintain Think about that just for a moment. Just consider it. The beautiful, God-stamped pieces of you will make it straight into forevermore and will live for eternity. Everything else will burn up. And because we're all a little bit different, not uniform, it makes God look even more glorious. I mean, there would be a limit to how beautiful God is if all of us look like just 
just versions of each other. But God will be glorified because of how different we are without sin. And the only time we're going to ever say farewell ever again in that day is to the broken, the brokenness that we walk through today. To that we could say farewell. Farewell to death. Farewell to division. To shame. To anger. To immaturity. Farewell. Until then, we get to enjoy each other's differences. We get to fight and contend firmly for the gospel. Amen.